Welcome back to Campbell Conversations with your host Colin Campbell and today is episode 187 of the podcast and I'm joined by Mark Walsh. Mark is the director of the Embodied Facilitator course and the founder of Embodiment Unlimited. I, like many others, refer to Mark as Mr. Embodiment and as this episode goes you will gain an understanding of just what embodiment means. You can expect to learn about how to identify self-awareness of your state, identify your traits, and even how the environment around us and the practices and activities that we do shape how we feel and act. This episode title of Get Out Your Own Head may sound very spiritual, and elements of this conversation certainly are, but Mark is fiercely practical when it comes to personal responsibility, handling trauma and dealing with it, the posture that we use and how we behave on a day-to-day basis. And I absolutely loved having this conversation, particularly for the type of people like myself who listen to a self-development podcast on a weekly basis. It's very, very good for us to get out of our rational, very focused heads at times and really try and understand what's going on with our body too. If you want to support today's podcast, there are three very quick things that you can do for free. You can make sure you're subscribed or following on whatever platform you're on. You can make sure you have left a five-star rating if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. And third, and certainly by no means least, you can choose to share this episode or one of your favorites from the archive with a friend that would enjoy the show as well. I am so fortunate to get to do what I do and the podcast growing to the level it has done to be able to host guests of the quality of mark it really takes you guys to keep pushing the show to friends and family members that would join this kind of community that we've built over the last 187 episodes so for that i'm very very thankful and the music's going to play and you're going to hear from myself and mr mark walsh Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. And you were saying this is a more relaxing meeting for you today than what's come before. Yeah, it's been the dentist uh, and the tax man. Um, and so I saw this in my diary. I did have a sauna at lunch. That was quite nice. So I don't want to complain too much. Uh, talking to people in Ukraine in school shot up full of bullets. And uh, yeah, this is the chill part of my day. So nice to see you, mate. Yes, it's fantastic to have you. And you're talking about some stressful experiences there, particularly for the the people that you've been supporting in Ukraine for the the last year. But before you were Mr. Embodiment, I want to go back to your upbringing and the way that things shaped you. And you've described before your upbringing as growing up in a trauma soup. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, my dad was alcoholic. And um, like most families, we had a fair share of stuff, probably a bit more than fair share. So plenty of mental illness in my family as well. And, um, you know, I grew up in a sort of working class farm community in East Anglia. I sometimes say for American listeners, that's like the Alabama of England, uh, the Fens, everyone's cousins. It's all cousins and hard drugs. So, um, you know, that was fun. And it wasn't a ghetto or anything. It was nice in some ways. I had plenty of space to run around as a kid, which is great. Um, But yeah, now I'd look back on it and go, okay, that was a pretty dysfunctional, traumatic childhood in some ways. But, you know, I was also lucky. I went to a pretty decent state school. I had a, you know, I was able to get a good education and, uh, you know, I was able to sort of get ahead in my life. So I don't complain too much, but certainly um, if you look at like, okay, my family's full of soldiers, schizophrenics, epileptics, depressives, alcoholics. It's not really a surprise I ended up in the psychology game. Yes, it, it, it's funny how often the experiences we go through and some of the things that we think that we can 
maybe solve from experience we end up doing down the line as not a passion project but as something that feels like a bit of a calling yeah i mean we're all sort of following our wounds following our heartbreaks we all end up uniquely talented based on the experiences we have and the things that really give us a lot of skills in life are often not the ones we'd pick right not the ones we'd wish on anyone else maybe either but they can lead to a sort of unique set of skills which um means we can do what we do what were some of the unique skills that you were developing at a young age then well uh, resilience mm. i think observing people right like i remember the first time I, my dad's epileptic and there was epileptic and i remember the first time i saw him have an epileptic fit and that made me really interested in states of consciousness right and just getting interested in motivations like here's my dad he's a pretty you know pretty decent loving guy a lot of the time and then he would just not be able to stop drinking and he would go and get smashed and afterwards not necessarily be a very nice man and i'd go what's that about you know so that i think got me curious it got me reading it got me interested uh it also gave me uh, the, like I, I give less of a fuck than most English people, and I, you know, I, I'm still, yeah, I'm not a total sociopath. I've got some concern for what other people think of me, but far less. And that turns out that's great, you know, in terms of entrepreneurial skills. And I think some of your listeners are interested in that. That ability to um, go, you know, what I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. You grew up in a village where your dad's the village village drunk. Then at a certain point, you just go screw it. Like it I need back some of your tolerance for risk. <laughs> uh, yeah, tolerance for risk and um, just like, okay, other people are judging me. Well, they're judging me anyway, you know, judging my whole family. So at a certain point you go, you know what, who are my real friends? Where does my self-esteem come from? You know, you can analyze it that way. And um, also I got confronted with death at quite a young age. So I, I was raised with a, a cousin. His mother actually killed, killed, killed herself. So he was raised pretty much by my mum with my gran and at, and at 14 he killed himself and that was tragic rest in peace but it was also the confrontation that life is a choice and death is real and that was the first of a few and i think that is tremendously useful if you want to find your life purpose you know i remember sort of at school or going to careers fairs and seeing these sort of corporate jobs offered and just going, why would I do that? You know, why would I do that given the horror of life and the wonderfulness of life? Like I was very prone to sort of um, altered states. I remember I went to Israel at 15 with some Jewish friends and I had big expansive states. You know, Israel's kind of a bit psychoactive that way. You can tell with prophets out in the desert, you know, there's a reason for that. And I'd taken psychedelics at quite a young age. So as well as sort of naturally kind of having these states, there were, uh, I encouraged them in various ways. I was always interested in different physical techniques and hold my breath as a kid and do all these things. So I'd seen sort of the wonderfulness of life and the horror of life and the fact that life was a choice and there was death. And the, the idea of not following your path to me at that age was just was just like, that makes no sense. Why would I go work for Globocore in their you know office in their marketing department? Fuck that. What were the next steps then? If you were had that level of self-awareness that I want to follow this path because of what I've seen and what I've experienced and some of the unique skills I feel that I've built up, what, what were you going to go and do? 
Well, at a young age, I think when I first had those realizations, I didn't realize I had skills. I, I just saw I had a slightly different perspective than most people. Um, and I was just pretty troubled by it. I was, you know, alcoholic myself by 17. And I think the beginning of seeing light at the end of the tunnel was uh, martial arts. So I went to university to study psychology because I'm interested in uh, the mind and mental illness, all these things. But by that point, I sort of figured out that the answer wasn't in books because I, I was an incredibly avid reader as a teenager. And I actually worked my way through the entire library at sixth form, literally the entire library. And um, I, I was still miserable. I was still alcoholic and depressed. So I thought, well, there's got to be something else. What am I missing here? Beyond the theory. Yeah, beyond the theory, beyond the books, beyond the knowing about things. Because I knew a lot about life, but I didn't really know life. Uh, and that's when I looked at the martial arts and the sort of Japanese have this concept of Budo, which means martial way. So they're not interested in fighting. You know, Japan's a very safe culture today. And it has been for quite a while. Um, what they're interested in is character formation, life skills. They're really interested in growing people. And I, you know, I was a very undisciplined young man, um, kind of chaotic, partly my Irish background, partly my relationship with my dad, partly just my personality. And I, I walked into a martial arts dojo at 18 and it was beautiful and it had order and structure and positive male role models and a way to develop myself. And, you know, I, I'd always sort of thought all oh, manliness is kind of um, a bit below me. Like I was kind of a camp poetry writing 17 year old and um, highly intellectual, very intellectual, a little bit emotional, but not really. I thought the body was just, you know, that was for sort of, um, I don't know what, like meatheads or jocks. I guess jocks, yeah. People, yeah. And I mean, Scottish people. And um, I, I kind of went, well, ah, the body's more than that. This is actually a way to develop oneself, to study oneself. And Aikido, just uh, Japanese martial art of Aikido, just opened worlds to me. It was like, this is beautiful. It had meaning to me. And it was still, still a few years till I sorted myself out. Uh, but that was the beginning of the beginning it was me saying okay there's something beyond book learning and it was deeply satisfying me so i just pursued it with all my heart and after university there's no way i was getting a corporate job um you know 20 years old when i graduated and i was just like show me the aikido dojos of the world that was um and aikido opened up into other things i opened up to meditation and dance and body therapy and trauma work and all the things i'm interested in now yeah, it's, it's wonderful to hear that. And I can certainly see how young men benefit from order in that respect. And Jordan Peterson's done a lot in recent years to to talk about that particular topic in terms of finding structure. And it's why a lot of young guys who maybe feel lost as teens end up in the military, for example, but you've ended up in a, in a, in a dojo and for the first time exploring what your body can do. But I'm going to introduce you as Mr. Embodiment, I joked as, and in the intro that I'll record after the fact that before this episode goes out, I will be talking about embodiment. But so many people listening might not be familiar with that phrase. So one, what does it mean? And two, yeah. when did you start to become familiar with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally, anyone is out there going, what the hell is that? I mean, I did an interview for Trigonometry recently and it went really well. Great podcast, people took a lot of the podcasts. The guys were great to me. And um, one of the comments was like, what the hell is embodiment, mate? You know, and I was like, yeah, I, I get it. I wish I was a plumber and I could just tell people that. Um, so let's just take the story, right? So I'm studying martial arts and I realize, ah, the body is more than a brain taxi. The, the body is a part of who I am. 
and I can learn about myself through it. I can learn about my life through it. I can develop skills through it. So that's an embodied perspective. So there's an umbrella term, the things like yoga, conscious dance, body therapy, trauma therapies. They all work with the body, improv comedy even. They work with the body, but they work with the body from the point of view of the subjective body. So the body is who I am, not the body as an object, the objective body. Um, and this is in some ways common sense, right? Like you understand if someone touches your body, that's not like them touching your pen, you know, that's, that's them touching you. Like we get on some level, we are our bodies and embodiment just really studies that in detail. Uh, last definition I sometimes give is you can break it down as a form of intelligence. And like when I've worked in corporates, for example, this is a relatively straightforward way to teach it. And there are, you can get better at body awareness. You can get better at self-regulation. You know, I was aware that I was like, you know, I was aware of the mood I was in coming into this interview. I was like, okay, it's been a really rough day already. And I was thinking, okay, what's the mood I'm in? How do I regulate myself? Right. I've got five minutes before this interview. Right. Okay. I need to get myself together. And then there's, you know, connecting with you. Some people have these skills without knowing what they're called. Well, I've seen your interviews, you're good at connecting and empathy and good interviewer, like that's embodied skills. Um, other people bump into them through leadership. Can you inspire people? Some people bump into it through romance, you know, can you flirt with people like that? You cannot learn that from a book. Some people learn it from parenting. Can you get on the floor and play with kids? I love playing, get on the floor and play with my niece and nephew. You know, so embodiment's all about many, many things, but fundamentally it's just about being human, really. A lot of what you're saying there is underpinned by self-awareness, but I think we definitely live in a society where self-awareness is at an all-time low or people are self, like almost self-prescribed random labels that they've seen other people prescribe on the internet. So, oh, I'm an angry person or I'm an anxious person. I'm a depressed person. I'm a, um, I'm, I've got ADHD, which everyone in, in, in their gran appears to be self-prescribing themselves on the internet at the moment as well. So I, I do find it so interesting that, so many people would maybe embody things that don't realize that they're embodying, if that makes sense, Mark. Yeah, I mean, self-awareness has got two time frames. One is just mindfulness, right? So it's like you're actually aware in the moment of your breath, your posture, your movement, um, you know, what you're bringing across. Like, I mean, everything's like I had a Colombian student around for lunch today. We had steak and it was great. We had a nice time. And she's got a Colombianness, and that is just apparent in what she's giving off. And she's in England for the first time and she's sort of bumping into a few things about it. So everyone's quite quiet here, you know? Like she's realizing there's a different sense of boundaries, a different sense of volume, space taking, um, which is great. And she's, she's aware enough of her own patterns to see that and to notice the effect. And, that's the beginning. Like I, when I sometimes when I work with clients, they they you know, say, "How are you doing?" and they don't know. They're exhausted, or they're angry, or they're resentful. They have no idea. Right? Like I, was, I was in the supermarket last night, just buying some snacks late at night, and there was a young guy in there working, and he was just so full of resentment. And it was just, and he was like, "Why are you buying coconut water?" And and it was like kept coming out, like how he was treating people, you know. And it was just coming out of his pores and his body language and how he's speaking and his thinking was super negative and. And it was just like he was living in hell. And I don't think he had any idea. If you asked him, he would have just said, I don't like my job, right? Which is fair enough. You know, maybe he didn't have the job he really wanted in life. He got some sympathy for anyone working in a supermarket at 10 o'clock at night. Um, but he wasn't really aware of that. And the other way is that we can be aware of more of our long-term patterns. So we have we can have states and traits, right? And you can't feel those. You can't 
become aware of those through meditation like you can with states so meditation is something i recommend for everyone it's a great way to build awareness but the traits we might need pointing out to us there's various ways to do that i do on workshops we can do tests the danger there is we put ourselves in boxes right and it's as you say it's super fat everyone's ex-boyfriend is a narcissist everyone's got on a spectrum of this or a spectrum of that i think we're we've gone from being having no mental health awareness to having a very sort of crude mental health awareness as a society we're going through a growing stage i would say it's not a bad thing but sometimes a bit tiresome you know i've been in circles and workshops and people have introduced themselves by saying you know i'm uh, uh my name's jack you know uh poc uh, adhd ptsd uh, they, their identities are very important, whether they be sort of you know racial identities, gender identities, uh, all identities, usually of um, some way to claim victimhood mm. or some way to claim kind of specialness. Um, and often there's a lack of personal responsibility in that. There's a lack of robustness in that. But I just assume people are grown ups and they're they're adult, right? Uh, particularly you know in comparison to the ukraine work you know like my team out there all these like kick-ass 25 year old women who just you know they they don't have time for those kind of problems and um yeah i think it can get a little silly how it's going at the moment though you know maybe i said it's just the growing stage and it's better that than my granddad's generation would be like i'm fine and they had massive ptsd from world war ii and they weren't prepared to admit it so maybe we've overshot a little bit yeah, quite often we have to go too far to then pull the dial back to where it, where it needs to be. And I think that's happening across a number of different issues at the moment. And mental health is probably one of them in terms of the conversation. And the labels, like you said, that are being used there are pretty deeply un, unhelpful. Because if you wear that as a badge on your sleeve, then it's going to define every interaction that you have off the back of it. Yeah, I mean, particularly if you're asking for what I'd call unreasonable accommodation. So this is term in HR of reasonable accommodation, which is fair enough. You know, it's like you know but i can't expect you not to wear a hoodie because i was once beaten up by people in hoodies right like that's unreasonable and you can't know that and i don't want to control you that way i love hoodies by the way i'm not against hoodies, but it's just a silly example um so there's the unreasonable accommodation the other thing is like embodiment's about awareness and choice and this is where we develop ourselves. so it's not enough for me to say hey i've had a bad morning therefore i'm gonna be in a bad mood and treat you badly and do a crap interview no, you've turned out well. You've, I've been looking forward to this interview. I want to do my best. I've got to regulate myself as best I can, right? Rather than expecting the world to change, to, to, to accommodate me, I've got to regulate myself. And then it's also, how do we develop ourselves? Yeah, I might have ADHD. I, I do, by all accounts, by the way. Um, but it's, it's my business to learn to meditate and do martial arts and get my focus together. I might not never, you know, I might never, I might not never. That is some proper fanboy coming out. I might not never. I might not never. <laughs> Back to your East Anglia roots. That is my roots, isn't it? Um, no, I might not never be the most focused, most disciplined person in the world. But boy, have I come a long way. You know, I'm not an alcoholic anymore. I'm pretty good with addictive issues these days. I've overcome stuff my dad didn't. You know, like I've learned to focus. I've learned to get my mind together through meditation. These are um, these are things you can do. You don't you don't have to be a victim. You know, you can learn things. I've spoken so much on the podcast about personal responsibility, and I genuinely believe it's still unfashionable at the moment in time to 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 embrace it. And one of the terms from embodiment is semantic responsibility, and I guess that's what you're speaking about there. 
somatic yeah not semantic so oh, there we go uh, yeah it's somatic sometimes a synonym for embodiment posh greek word meaning the body in its full wholeness um these greeks had two works for the body sarks which meant like a hunk of meat and somatic which included the emotional and the political and the psychological um yeah so somatic responsibility is is basically saying uh, i'm not going to make my problem everybody else's problem because we are we're infectious right like i was just i was just on a plane from Canada a couple of nights ago. And it's like, okay, if I sit next to someone on a plane, I'm going to pick up on their state. Right. And if you're, if you're on the plane and your job is welcoming people, you know, you can make that whole plane anxious or you can make that whole plane relaxed. And, you know, airplane pilots know this, don't they? They train them, you know, like, hello, welcome to British Airways. I'm terribly calm and, you know, sexy in an older man kind of a way, you know, like they, they, they train them to convey somatic state. Cause if, it's a bit different than you know hello welcome to easyjet i just qualified we're going to mallorca i don't know if we're gonna get there or not do you know what i mean like you can convey somatic state through how you are the and, energy and in the tone would shift radically exactly. so what people call energy in inverted commas you know a lot of that is effectively co-regulation we might call it in trauma work it's um uh, we could say emotional contagion is another term you'll hear in emotional work uh, the fact that we're catchy and this is also, you know, this is what people get from us. This is if you flirt with someone and they like it. This is if you're a leader and you can keep calm while everybody else is losing their head because the rocket fire started or the tax reports coming in or whatever it is. You know, this is something we we know in our bones. And we've always known this. But embodiment just puts names and structure and a little bit of training on things that are pretty common sense. Yeah, absolutely. And that whole victimhood piece that you're talking about to me just now, I find it interesting that when we lack personal responsibility, we maybe lean more into some of these labels and these states that we, or traits even, that we're, that we're, we're semi-aware of but not doing anything about. Yeah, I mean, victimhood's become a currency, right? And there is a payoff to victimhood. Traditionally, particularly from a more sort of feminine point of view, that you will um, be more likely to receive care from the community, right? In the same way as if a child's sick, you know, we look after them, you know, there's a certain amount of sympathy. Um, the problem is we lose all our power. So actually it's a tremendously disrespectful and disempowering thing to do to suggest people are victims. But then we could go too far the other way, right? Like this is the basic sort of liberal and conservative truths that are like two wings of a bird, uh, that we do have different conditions. So while, I may have a uh, choice and free will and, you know, determination and willpower and all those things. Yes, that's great. But, you know, some people grow up with a lot, of, a lot of wealth, which is really the only kind of privilege in inverted commas that really matters. You know, there's others, you know, some people have, have just, I was pretty healthy growing up. You know, I knew people that weren't. Um, there's ones people don't talk about, like height. You know, that makes a difference in a lot of social encounters or attractiveness. People don't like to say that is not entirely subjective, but it, you know, you're a good-looking bloke. That's going to be an advantage to you in your life. There's pretty privilege, hundred percent. And the average height of Silicon Valley CEOs are like is like six foot two or something like that, yeah, which because it indicates competence, doesn't it? If you're tall. And well, people used to think about it semantically. People are used to looking up to their parents, and that's your first model of competence. That's your first model of authority. Um, so I've seen this in group processes where I say, right, we're going to pick a leader. Just turn towards someone and. Who's that? They're the leader. And it's like way weighted towards taller people. So I always wear heels. You know, there's no, there's a, there's a, no, thing. So, you know, we've got to pl work with what we've got and not complain too much. But then it's also worth bearing in mind, 
I think money is a big one in the UK right now. A lot of people are struggling. I got a 500 pound electricity bill for one month electricity last month. And I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, I'm probably top 10% earners, right? I'm doing okay. But I, that stung me. And I was a little bit anxious to put the lecky on after that, you know? And then I thought, well, if I'm a bit anxious, what about someone who's a single mum? What about someone who's really in poverty? And, um, and that affects how we are. That affects our state. It affects, you know, when we're in that fight or flight response, and it it's low level in every big city in the world, Glasgow, London, New York, Moscow, whatever. And it's increased by things like poverty or just being a bit short on cash. It's increased by the media. It's increased by technology. Use. That cuts us off from our body. We go into that fight flight state where we're anxious. We're not so creative. We're not so able to connect with other people. And that creates vicious circles. So we need some practice to get out of that, right? Like there's a reason I lifted weights this morning at 8 a.m. You know, there's a reason people go dancing. I've got dancing as well. There's a reason I, I do my coaching calls, walking in the fields just so I can be in nature and just have it. Just find that a tremendous way to chill, you know? Absolutely. So we need ways to regulate ourselves, but we also need ways to challenge ourselves because the problem is life is easy, so we're becoming weak, right? So we need both. Yeah, and a lot of what you're talking about there is self-regulation. So choosing to lift weights, choosing to have state change, choosing to be moving while you're on your coaching calls. I choose to stand during my podcast because I feel slightly more agile and more more yeah. adept at co conversations as well. I do it for a lot of my corporate Zoom calls as well when I'm when I'm maybe pitching. But I, I've heard you speak before about co-regulation. How does that differ to self-regulation? Yeah, we normally say self-regulation, co-regulation, eco-regulation, which is being chilled out in nature, and theo-regulation, meaning uh, being the connecting to purpose, meaning, and higher power. Yeah. Um, so if you think of, um, I don't know, an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous, much maligned, but actually very successful organization around the world with millions of members. Self-regulation, like you might meditate in it, for example, but it's actually just being in a group and sharing. Well, I was just stuck in a sauna with my friend, hanging out for half an hour on my lunch break, chatting to her. We're huggy, we're chatty. There's eye contact, there's facial contact, you know, like it's like all the things that you'd expect. And it just chills you out. Or dogs, people love their dogs for co-regulation. People love choirs for co-regulation. Like co-regulation is actually more important than self-regulation for keeping us sane. Uh, like one of the trainers in the Ukraine project I supervised was messaging me today and she's having a tough time in this training and um, right near the front lines, actually. It's tough where she is. And uh, she's phoning me up for a bit of support, which is great. She knows to phone me up for a bit of support. And I actually said to her, look, you need to go with a partner next time. You need to go. She made the mistake of going taking a job just on her own. And I said, no, 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 you're going to be around a lot of dysregulated people that it will impact you. You need to have a partner with you there. So I'm going twos next time, going pairs to do the training. So this this very common sense and practical things, once you know about co-regulation, once you know about eye contact and facial expressiveness, and you know when that breaks down, it's not a nice world. In the hybrid working world since C19, even before that, I was working from home primarily and then going out across the UK to see clients. Yeah. Do you think it's harder to co-regulate than ever before in this kind of work from home environment? Yeah, absolutely. It's complete. It's a complete disaster. And I think the effects of uh, lockdown are just becoming known on children, for example, uh, on people's well-being. It's massively bad for your health being on your own. I mean, I've done solitary meditation retreats, right? they're really fun for about two days if you're an introvert it might be three or four days they're fun and then after that it's something akin to torture i mean there's a reason solitary confinement is a thing 
you know, that's one of the worst forms of torture. And um, co-regulation, it keeps us sane, it keeps us well, it's the glue of society. And my sense is it's actually collapsed due to not just C19, but other things, you know, very, I mean, it was already a problem and we were already impoverished, as my friend Tad says, compared to our, in this regard, compared to our sort of Neolithic ancestry. You know, we evolved to be in a tribe of 150 people who were hunting together, fishing together, you know, running together in ceremony and ritual. That's what we evolved for. I mean, the modern world is madness. I mean, it's got some wonderful things. Don't get me wrong. I wouldn't want to live in a Neolithic tribe. I rather like my iPhone and my, you know, all the rest of their cappuccinos and et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, I think we should honor the best of the West and the best of what we're in. I'm not a hater of Western civilization by any means. I love Western civilization. And we should also recognize we've got to a point in our sort of techno industrial world. I mean, I, everyone I know is mental now. It's like my family growing up now. Every family is like my family. It's, it's bonkers. And I think, you know, just the sticking plaster of yoga once a week and a bit of meditation from your app ain't going to cut it. Yeah, it certainly doesn't seem that way. And I, I can see that some people do maybe hold up those like sticking plasters, like you say, over gaping wounds, and it's not really going to be going to be an, 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 enough at all. And, and when I was thinking about that co-regulation piece and that connection piece, I don't think technology necessarily replaces that. So I'm, I love the fact that I can speak to people all over the country, all over the world on this podcast via this little platform that we're, we're on just today called StreamYard. And I like that I can stay in touch with my colleagues for Teams, Zoom when required but it isn't the same as the time that I spend face-to-face. -face. So I know during the lockdowns, I was fortunate enough to be going to a garage gym with other people. Now, I was getting called a granny killer online because of that, but I was I was largely pretty disagreeable, so it wasn't, uh, wasn't too fast. But I was training with friends, but if I didn't have that, I would have been going mad inside my flat by myself because I was getting social connection at night when we were doing different workouts together. Yeah, it's not just the self-regulation of the exercise, which is a great start. It's also the co-regulation, doing workouts together, social contact. That can be quite light. It can just be like, there's a neighbour. I know my neighbours now. I live in a small town. I sort of know, there's Graham and his big dog. And I, I give his dog a little ruffle. He's got a Rottweiler I like. And, um, you know, I say, hi, Graham. And I just walk on with my day. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It's like I'm recognised, you know. My mentees are here. I think we've been working online, but we're getting together, and it's so different when you get together in person. There's no replacing that. This, you know, if you've ever tried to have a long distance relationship, it's rubbish. It's really tough. And yes, it's great that I can find people with specialist interests. You know, the embodiment tribe. You know, we've got an app, and you know, I can find people on the Instagram, whatever. That's brilliant. But um, it doesn't replace. It doesn't replace the human connection human culture that's what keeps us sane yes you mentioned different cities there in endorse or in cause different fight or flight responses and i definitely noticed that when i spend time in different areas you yeah. spent time in so many different countries whether it's through work or just for travel yeah. what are the different states of embodiment that you come across in different places like what are the kind of common traits to different places oh i could talk about this forever i'm obsessed with culture i'm from an irish immigrant family married to a ukrainian and i've lived and dated in over 50 60 probably i've probably worked in at least 50 countries so i'm absolutely obsessed with you you're the right person for me to ask that question this question i'm probably the top person in the world for uh, i mean different cities have a different degree of speed or fight or flight like moscow is pretty hardcore 
um you know i've spent a lot of time in israel there's a lot of trauma there but it's more hyper arousal trauma than hypo arousal trauma so russia tends to be sort of shut down you know not so emotions not so emotionally expressive uh london's pretty stressful new york's pretty quick and then there's you know brighton where i used to live it's got a much more lively colorful upbeat kind of vibe you know some places have that i was just in montreal which has this creative kind of vibe and some cities are in the mountains and some cities are in the woods some cities are on the coast all these things affect i mean you get off the train from london to brighton it's an hour journey from victoria and as soon as you go through those barriers it's like boo oh you just feel a whole different we could say energy again right but it's a group embodiment essentially and it's like you'll see that in regions too like different neighborhoods in edinburgh and glasgow can seem real different right like you've got some pretty different neighborhoods there and um yeah you they've all got a different flavor and i love that and i love trying to figure that out and uh, going, okay what is it to be canadian and okay so something about boundaries and being nice and people pleasing and we were looking at that in canada with the group and i've, I've lived in a few countries and i know a few well i find it fascinating fascinating topic one of the terms you use was equal regulation so Ooh. if you spend more time in brighton or london do you start to embody the city itself yeah so your embodiment has different layers so some of them are just got situational right like your podcast hosting so that's a certain role some of them are relational like we know each other a little bit so we've had a sort of nice interaction but we're not like best mates or anything right or if we were brothers it would be a different embodiment for both of us different relational um some of it's situational so your environment impacts you you know how people end up looking like their wives or their dogs or whatever right like, like you're who you spend time with and where you spend time like i remember i used to work in moscow and it's quite a hard stressful place for a lot you know 15 million traumatized people and it's a pretty rough history if you look, listen to it and um my colleagues there you know it was quite a certain kind of relationship and then one of them came to visit me in brighton and she's like you are much nicer here in brighton and i'm like yeah because i'm not fucking stressed out by this mad ass city you know like i'm at home i'm chill i'm by the sea and yes, after some time, you do take it on. So we should be careful where we choose to live. I've, I've moved to a little town in the countryside for a reason. Like, I don't want to live in a hectic city anymore. Yeah, it's a very conscious choice because then that will dictate largely how you feel at different times. Your nervous system's mostly impacted by, we could say, people, practices, and place, right, through P's. And of those practices is the one you have the most power over, but it's actually the least impactful. So yeah, do martial arts, do your yoga, do your conscious dance, depending on what you want to embody, right? Most people do a practice just deepening their neurotic tendencies. Whereas you can consciously say, you know what, I want to work on lightening up and being more playful. So I'm going to go to improv comedy twice a week. Or hey, I want to work on flow and following. So I'm going to do this kind of dance, you know? Uh, or, hey, I want to kind of firm up my boundaries and be a bit more assertive, so I'm going to do karate, right? You could do that consciously. That's what my students do. Most people just sort of go with what they normally do, uh, and that's practice. And then you've got people and places, right? The nervous systems you're around, the people you're with. And you'll notice this, like, when I meditate with even one other person, it's so much easier, so much easier than doing it on your own. Almost like you're being held to account to stay in the flow state. It's held to account, but it's more than that. It is actually, it's not just that you don't want to kind of get up and make a coffee because you'll look bad. It just is actually easier because there's a field of, of uh, co-regulation and a field of like intention. And it's, it sounds a bit esoteric, but the experience of everyone I know is that 
you know, you go to the gym and it's just easier to work out, right? You can be a bit depressed when you walk in and then you're around, you know, 10 guys who are like, right, let's do it. And they're like, you know, screaming and shouting, what? going for it. And there's music on. Music is packaged embodiment, right? And then you're not depressed anymore. You just start the after a couple, couple of sets, you're in the mood, right? Because you're in that environment. You're with those people. So it's like, you don't have to be fucking depressed all the time. Do you know what I mean? Like we can have some, we can actually design where we are. We can design our life on people we're around and mood and this is always to some degree right like you might be stuck in an office full of people who are really apathetic right so then you've got to work harder on your practices yes yes you've got to spend the time that you've got away from that office you've got to use as wisely as possible to to bulletproof you for when you do spend time in the office yeah and sometimes it's just choosing to you know i said hey you know to my colleague in ukraine i said like take a break from these nervous systems go to the park chill out you know just sit on your own for a bit on a bench. You don't want to be around nervous systems that are 50 kilometers from a war, you know, front line all day long. You named a few different practices there and some of the outcomes of those. So for example, to be more assertive karate, mm-hmm. how can people maybe consider what practices might be right for them? Yeah. I mean, I just say, what's the embodiment you want to build? I mean, we have models of this, right? So I break down embodied intelligence into skill sets and you could say, okay, karate is great for self-regulation. Cold showers are great for self-regulation. If you haven't got time for karate, breath holds are great for self-regulation, right? Uh, But what about self-expression? So what's good for that? Like conscious dance, going crazy, screaming, shouting, jumping around with a load of hippies, okay? Doing improv comedy, as I mentioned, right? Like playing with kids. There's loads of things you could do. Um, The key thing is what's the skill or the quality you want to build? So we have models for this. So we'll say what's a watery quality? What's a, a fiery quality like, you know, MMA or something, right? What's an earthy quality? Okay, Iyengar yoga, really strict, really disciplined, really exact. What's an airy quality? Something fun, light. So you, you, it doesn't take me long to teach people. Like if people do a day workshop, by the end of it, they've got some really good maps. And so first is like you need to self-assess, like where am I at? And then the second thing is what do I need? I think a lot of people would struggle to even do that self-assessment piece in today's society. I think they're maybe scared of what they might find. <laughs> yeah, I mean, self-awareness sucks, right? Because it's like the first time I started, I did YouTube for the first time like 12 years ago or something, right? The first time I saw a video of myself, I was like, oh, I look like an idiot. I still don't like looking at myself. It's, you know, I said that to you earlier. And it's like hearing my own voice. Like in my head, I'm like a cool English Harrison Ford. And in reality, I sound like a monkey. You know, and it's like the first time I heard my own voice, I was like, no way. And it's just cringe. Self-awareness. That's called being self-depreciating, Mark. You're very nice to listen to. You've got a podcast yourself. You've been a guest on some great shows. My voice is deep and over the years as I've done more embodiment, I noticed as well. But uh, it sort of gets lower down in you as you get more relaxed in the diaphragm. But um, yeah, but there's always going to be a cringe factor because our self-esteem is built at least in part on self-deception like we all think we're great people and we all give ourselves the best possible explanations for our own behavior you know it's like yeah i wasn't being asshole i was just having a bad day you know you're the hero in your own story somebody else or some external factor is the villain exactly we tend to see ourselves situationally if we're bad and dispositionally if we're good and other people the opposite um so given that there's going to be some disconnect and it's kind of uncomfortable but then I think people also do want to know, you know, people do have this urge to be like, what do you think of me? Yeah. Like one of the best, if you just for the single, the single guys, listen to this single guys, yep. I'm going to let you in on my secret. Okay. Um, the best Tinder opener I ever used while I was single 
was, hey, would you like to know what I like about your profile? Why is that the best? Yeah, writing that down. Do you? Um, why is that the best Tinder opener? One, curiosity, good for open rates if you do email marketing. Uh, two, it's genuine. I actually want to say, you know, it's authentic. I actually want to say what I like about this person. But three, people want to know about themselves. People are like, what do you think of me? Like, if you want to know what you like, send a text message to 10 people saying, describe me in three words. Now, I could give you expert feedback if you're in the room, right? I could say, well, this is what I see in body language and how you talk. You don't need to because you can triangulate on 10 of your mates. And, you know, if they're British, if they're English or Scottish, they'll probably say, uh, yeah, you're confident, you're intelligent, and you're a bit of a wanker. <laughs> right. But then you just take that one out and you go, all right, so confident, intelligent. And then you start looking at what everybody else says. And, you know, if, if 10 people say you, you're quacking, you're probably a duck. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that that's so interesting. And that's an interesting point regarding the, the Tinder opener, because that really is the kind of forefront of human psychology at the moment where we're experimenting what's going on in these apps. Oh, God. Um, yeah, God, I, I, I hope I'm not increasing that, that anymore. It's uh, it's a bit of a nightmare, but uh, the, that's another one. It's human technology and what it's doing to us. Yeah, well, uh, we, 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 we could briefly discuss that, Mark, because I saw you doing a video about posture and that whole kind of slump forward on the phone piece where people have those rounded shoulders you see it on public transport all the time just glued to their phone sitting yeah. sitting yeah. there looking at it you see that people in their in their seat in their office distracted from their actual work instead just consuming fast-paced tiktoks or reels on their on their phone slump forward what role does posture play in our embodiment well posture breath movement they're all bi-directional links right meaning that they express how we are but they also create how we are like try saying you're depressed while doing star jumps not jumping jacks americans well it's impossible you just can't do it yeah um try you know sitting on a bouncy ball and saying you're depressed you can't do it yeah so it's equally uh put yourself in the posture that you would use while using a mobile phone what is that posture for most people it's one of uh depression and or submission it's a very submissive head bowed you know kind of posture so that's how we're literally shaping ourselves and the you know the fascia in your body will mean that shape will become more likely so the way the body works is it, it tries to be economical so what we do a lot it kind of uh, a fascia which is kind of a layer that goes through the muscle and the skin it's kind of like a body glove that goes through us and it shapes how we are so that becomes the easier shape to go in Embodiment just means habit, really. It's just what's a shape that's easier. And that shape is not just physical, it's mental, emotional. It's how you think, it's how you feel, it's how you interact. It's, how, it's, it's all of those things. So it's like, how do you want to shape yourself? Whether that be literally through your movement, through holding your phone all day, or, you know, slightly more an extended way through who you hang out with. And one of my teachers always said, we're always practicing. So like right now, you're probably practicing being attentive. What a great thing to practice. I know being a podcast host myself has made me a way better listener than I was before. You do I a good active, podcast. active listening as well. Not just even listening. Right. Like a couple of times you've come in and said, is this what you mean? And you can clarify things like that's a skill. And you know, after 500 hours of that, I'm, I'm not great at it, but I'm better than I was. Of course. Of course. A lot of the listeners really like Jordan Peterson. I've certainly learned a lot from him and one of his tradition uh, kind of traditional lessons is around standing up straight and that relates to posture but i know that you've gone even further than that in terms of the advice to to expand upon what dr peterson said initially yeah boy jp i mean we, i think a lot of us have got a lot from him and he's certainly you know enriched i think the lives of many people uh, i'd say he's not a particularly physical person 
like I don't hear about him talking about weights or martial arts or even yoga. He tends to be he's a professor, right? Which is fair enough. That's his job. Um, but he recognizes, you know, his stand up straight with your shoulders back. That's a sort of primitive. I could flesh that out for about two weeks, right? Um, and it's like, well, sometimes that's a great posture, but we have to ask, what's it a great posture for? So yes, sometimes you know, expanding ourselves, taking up full space can be very, very helpful, particularly if someone's sort of minimizing themselves, right? Like people are taught to do in lower class, and women are taught to do that, and certain cultures are taught to do that. Um, so I think, I mean, stand up straight, shoulders back could just make people sort of stiff and a bit aggressive, right? Depending on how they do that. So it needs to be a little bit more refined than that. But the basic idea of you know, we talk about uh, dignity or length, the idea of having spine. You say such and such has backbone. You know, we know that Gollum, my precious, you know, we know that he's hunched over. He's not yes. an upright man. We know that. Yeah. We know that someone that takes space without apology, their body isn't a groveling apology. We know that's an embodied thing. This is who we respect naturally. Um, so there's a little bit more to it than he says, but I'm I'm glad that there's at least one rule that's a sort of somatic rule in this in his book to do with actual the body yeah i think i think i think that's very important he's massively turned his attention more towards diet in recent years particularly with his own health challenges which i think has been important but yes it's good that we've got we've got something there when it comes to actual the the body too yeah for sure for sure people have got interested in like hacking their body but it's still a very it's like right the perfect diet and i'm gonna have this many grams protein and I'm going to, you know, wear this aura ring and I'm going to measure my sleep hours. And, my, you know, I've got one of these for steps and heart rate variability, which is great. But that's not really building the skill to actually feel it yourself. Right. You're, yeah. still, you're still in an objectified relationship to your body as other, right, as data or some, a machine to optimize. I mean, it's very like last century, actually. And, and it's, it's, it's good that guys are doing that. But what you'll see is guys go to the gym to get fit, but then they actually realize what they really get from it is the discipline. They, you know, like, like a bench press, right? That's boundaries. That's, that's an energy. That's a quality. That's pushing. Fuck, get away from me. No, right? That's a bench press. A bench press isn't, like, who gives a shit if you've got man boobs? Who cares, right? Like this, these, this, this, this bit of titty, this doesn't help my life. My wife doesn't even care if I got it, you know, but the qualities I build in the gym, that, that, that is what's important. They go further. That's interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I can I can see from an embodied perspective that that makes total sense. Uh, you've mentioned Ukraine on a couple of occasions. And when I first became a viewer, became aware of your your work, we were it was almost a almost a year ago that or just over a year ago that Russia invaded Ukraine and you went into um, to get involved in that situation but what kind of support from an embodiment perspective do you give people that are in an environment that is as chaotic and stressful as that yeah i mean i've worked in various war zones and areas of conflict in my life ukraine was a particularly personal one because of my family connection there and it's on my mind a little bit today just i've been supervising someone there um i mean first thing is just trauma education making people aware of these phenomena we're talking about so lots of ways to define trauma. What we've talked about fight or flight. One would be fight or flight getting stuck in the body. So rather than being, hey, I talked to the tax man and it was stressful, I'm over it now. You know, I'm in a good mood talking to you. I've let it go. Imagine being stuck that way. Yeah. Um, or the freeze response, which is like a shutdown response, which is a bit less familiar to most people. So it's either chronic fight or flight or freeze. 
just letting people know about that because the impacts of that have impacts on their diet, health, sexual life, relationships, all sorts of things, all sorts of things. So education is massively helpful. Um, and, you know, the team I trained have now taught all the doctors, nurses and teachers in Lviv, for example, which is one of the biggest cities in, in Ukraine and where a lot of refugees are. So it's the most trauma aware city in the world now. It's like 11,000 people they trained. Um, so just being aware of it's great. And then you can learn some basic self-regulation tools. You can learn some things that can be helpful for discharging a certain amount of trauma and stress. I'm a big fan of something called TRE, which is a shaking technique. Some people like EFT, which is a tapping technique. Um, one of my colleagues there is an EMDR teacher, which is a kind of a weird thing that really works really well, but no one knows why, where you use eye movement to release trauma. Um, normalizing certain responses so that people actually get help. You know, I remember I was, I've been working in Ukraine for years because there's a conflict, there's a small, a small conflict before this big one, as where I met my wife. I remember a soldier sort of saying, oh, that's why I'm shouting at my kids more than I used to. Oh, that's why I can't make love to my wife. Okay, what do I do about it? Right? Like people just knowing that they're not insane and those things are actually symptoms if they've got disruption. In this case, he had some anger issues, which are totally normal if you've got trauma. Yeah. Um, and he had some uh, dysfunction kind of sexually due to his due to being stuck in that fight or flight response. And he didn't get it. He just thought he didn't love his wife. And he didn't love his kids. And he was a bad man. And I was like, dude, you're not a bad man. You're just suffering. And, you know, go see my colleague here in Kiev. She'll sort you out. Yeah, that's remarkable that that level of self-awareness needs to show up, particularly when people are maybe in that moment. Because if you're in fight or flight, you're probably less able to step out of the situation that you're in and recognize why you're feeling the way you feel. Ooh, the, the, that's a very astute observation. Yeah, like fight or flight actually makes us less aware. Um, so fight or flight makes us less able to deal with fight or flight. This is this is why it's much better to spot it. Chicken egg. Yeah, we get numb and we don't feel it and we get less smart and less creative and less kind. That's the problem. So then we're less smart about solutions and less kind to ourselves, which which isn't helpful. So um, yeah, I mean, basic education, basic tools, signposting, something called trauma first aid if people are you know because you can have an acute trauma response like i had a car accident i had the shakes afterwards it's an acute trauma response totally normal okay but we had a day or two it, it calmed down it wasn't a big deal right but there's things that mean that acute trauma response is more or less likely to become a chronic trauma response so um knowing about those things is pretty helpful and knowing about other things like if a soldier freezes up on the front lines and wets their pants which is super common they might think oh i'm a coward it's like no dude that's a biological response a gazelle has a freeze response these are very normal things yeah it's it, it is remarkable and I, I just wonder like you say the long-term effects of things like lockdowns wars these have such long-term lead uh, kind of effects and not having maybe some of the education that you're providing to people could leave them exposed to to far more challenges in the future than if they can address some of these things yeah i mean my granddad was well both granddads are world war ii veterans one sort of did okay the other one was like you know waking up screaming in cold sweats 20 years after the war and he, he if you are he's like, i'm fine didn't want to talk about it you know have to talk about it but it's worth doing something about talking isn't always the best idea but sometimes it can help and there's definitely techniques that can help and i think we're actually in a unique position that despite this sometimes it goes a little bit over the top and a bit you know sort of this californian trauma and this ukraine trauma do you know what i mean 
like I'm sort of I have I have access to both as it were so it's uh, quite a, sometimes a bit over the top but actually we're in a great position that human beings are learning about this stuff on mass I mean Ukraine's actually unique and it's the first war where the government were open to trauma awareness work during the war normally it's like 20 years after Vietnam when all the vets are killing themselves and drug addicted right they're self-medicating um but now and even the British army they keep forgetting it and renaming it um, but now it's happening like during because the Ukrainians see it as a sort of Western thing, basically, which is positive. Um, so that's actually unique. I've never seen that before. The Israelis are also getting pretty good at it because they like to have a war every 10 years, which isn't really long enough to forget the last one. Um, so Ukraine and Israel, there's a couple of like bright spots where I think people are becoming more trauma aware and um, seeing the impact that has. You know, there's an Israeli comedian, he says, We'll have peace in the Middle East when we have a prime minister without PTSD. And I thought that was a very astute joke. You know, I was really impressed with that. And that was on mainstream TV. Like people were joking about it because a lot of people in Israel know what PTSD is now. You know, and this is um, this is a good thing. There's hope for the human race. Awareness is a superpower. I would, I would, I would certainly agree. Uh, regarding trauma, and you said California trauma versus Ukrainian trauma. In the Western world, uh, you, you, when you were interviewed on trigonometry, you were talking about there almost being a supply and demand issue when it comes to trauma, and people almost pleased to become the victim and, and claim trauma. Why do you think that is? It's become a currency. Uh, it's been a way to claim power over people. Um, in the absence of virtue. What you know, one of the main claims about trigonometry, which I stand by, is that we don't really have a way to be good in the Western world. We don't have a set of values anymore. Like king and country is old fashioned, church is old fashioned for most people, not all, but most. So, what is that way to be good? Well, you know, there's the sort of performative actions of supporting the cause of the day. Um, then there's the um, uh, being a victim and saying, you know, I'm very delicate and special and therefore I need special attention as a way to gain control. It's what people are taught. And I think it's very sad. And, you know, there's also just problems with definition, like trauma, the, the barrier for trauma, because trauma is subjective, right? Like it's trauma can be caused by anything that's overwhelming. So what, who's to say what's overwhelming for someone else? Right? Like it's probably like, the, the barrier yeah. to entry has probably got war mark, hasn't it? Like people have got yeah. weaker. Yeah, but there's two things. One, people have got weaker, and two, people are genuinely seeing the sort of little trauma. Sometimes they call it small T trauma, or sometimes people talk about developmental trauma. It's just like trauma that happens throughout childhood that might not be like one big event, complex PTSD, they call that. And um, so I think there's some good stuff in lowering the bar, but there's also some risks. And I mean, sometimes to me, it's almost comical because in the same day, I can be having someone write me an email of complaint that they're traumatized that I made a joke. And I can be on the phone to Lviv and just be like, you know, hearing horror stories. Like, let's have some perspective, please, and thank you. Yeah, yeah, perspective is useful. Gratitude is useful. Um, you know, building resilience is useful. Actually, seeing robustness as a skill and a virtue. Um, you know, I think reclaiming masculinity is at the heart of this. Like stoicism is. Yes, we need emotional intelligence, but also, you know, reclaiming kind of classic masculine values. I think is also part of this, and not demonizing them. Because uh, we need to offset values of sensitivity and consideration and cutting people some slack who may have grown up in a really racist environment or a really sexist environment. You know, like we need to cut them some slack and we need to offset that with a little bit of responsibility and, you know, classic values of self-regulation and those kind of things.
a difficult balancing act, but I think, as you say, we're probably too far in the wrong direction at the moment and we need to pull it back towards some of the traditional values that we've previously held. Yeah, probably, definitely. I mean, we're comically weak and we've we've made a turn to what could be called the feminine. I don't mean anything against women by that. I mean, certainly, the, you know, the women I work with in Ukraine are massively stronger than most of the men I know in East London uh, on every capacity, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. So, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of strength holistically. You know, I think men need to be not embarrassed about building strength. And that is psychological strength, you know, mental strength, learning, speaking languages, reading. But it's also emotional capacities, which is self-expression. Yes. You know, not like my granddad, who couldn't say he had any problems, but also self-regulation, self-awareness. You know, also, yes, empathy, but also leadership. Empathy is great. You know, I went to a talk at Canadian University a week ago and it was all about the, um, the superpower of empathy. And I was like, well, you think a surgeon's empathic when they, they cut someone's cut something out of someone's body? Like we, empathy alone is is ridiculous. It's I mean it's useful, but it's not the only thing there is in life. So yeah, that balance has more than a little. I think you were being a little bit polite there to the the sorry ass state of the world in that. And um, you know, I'm gonna be cancelled within a year or two, I'm sure of it. So um I, I kind of might as well have some fun in the meantime speaking the truth. If um if the mob come for you though, Mark. How do you how do you ride it out? Because I am seeing people riding it out to some extent. I mean, people can have differing opinions on Andrew Tate, but apart from being arrested, he actually rolled out the, the cancellation <laughs> to some extent and became more popular because he went on Pierce Morgan and he actually held his own largely and some of his ideas held up to scrutiny while others didn't, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've rode it out once before anyway, so I think it's, it happens repeatedly. I had it once a few years back. Um, I think, first, we need to have a certain robustness. Uh, secondly, you need to realize that you have a negativity bias. So, you know, you look at the comments, never read the comments on YouTube, right? But there'll be, you know, 10 positive ones and one negative one. You've got to be careful of that. There's a very vocal, crazy minority. Also, I, I curate my communities. Like we have a Facebook group with 40,000 people for uh, Embodiment Unlimited, our company. And I just put a post up saying, hey, if you're easily offended, if you here's an activist, you're not really an embodiment person, I said, just fuck off. Just get out. You know, and I said it a bit more politely than that, but it was pretty much just get lost. And the, the community liked the shit out of that post. And there was a couple of people saying, I'm, a bit, I'm like, yep, please play elsewhere. So I curate that community. I create my audience. I say to people, hey, I'm going to make jokes. I'm going to swear. I'm going to use real examples from war zones. If that's not for you, there is a safe place in Portland that, that will happily take your blue haired, fluffy head. And that's fine. You know, good luck to you. You're going to be happier there. I'm going to be happier here. So we need to yeah. create opportunities. You can have your lived experience there. You're, yeah, like what is lived experience? Like why is that? Why is, is there dead experience? Are we talking to ghosts? You know, I, I do think the, the, the goalposts and language have moved so much. I, I hosted Rob Henderson recently, who's been on both um, some of the shows that you've been on, so Trigonometry and um, Modern Wisdom. And we were bemoaning the movement of language and the ability to shift the goalpost so quickly that if you in a particular debate or discussion didn't use the accepted language the rest of your opinion is struck off in some way so if right, you did right. an interview on bbc news for example and you didn't use the perfect terminology for race or sex or gender at that particular time frame yeah, yeah, or yeah. even even like mental illness is like a, is, is a big one where like if you use a particular term around that now people are like, oh no that's not the right term to use or um i saw recently like they were saying oh it's not homeless it's unhoused and you're thinking well 
that's not uh, and, and and Rob was laughing that that's not the issue. Like, go up and tell a homeless person. Don't worry. The good news is you're no longer homeless. Yeah, yeah, or yeah. okay. Or, so let's. Can I draw up? Like, is that right? Please. Yeah. Please so do. Like, like, why is this the case? Well, there's two reasons. One, it creates a ruling class of intellectuals who are middle class wankers who study this stuff because you have to study it and you have to have the time and the you know, school, you have to have been to Bristol Uni or some shit to do this, right? So it creates a priestly class who are in charge of the rest of us, and they are liberal intellectuals. Okay, so it's a power move. That's the first thing to sell. It is a power move. It's not we're improving in some way. Secondly, it eliminates history. It eliminates elders. Because your granddad is saying colored people instead of people of color, right? And your granddad is wise and worth listening to. And, you know, my case was a World War II survivor and da da da, da right? Survivor even, he wouldn't have said that, veteran. Um, and by saying, okay, if one word is off, colour people versus people of colour, that's the same phrase, but reversed the words, right? So I go, granddad, you're not really supposed to say that anymore. You know, da, 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 da. have I just eliminated elders? And not even elders now, not even granddads, dads. Have I eliminated everyone from the debate? So now we put children in charge and that... That is something the Maoists have done. It's something cults do. It's something extremely unhealthy. So it's a power move. We should recognize it as such. And it's it's also deeply disrespectful because if everything's white supremacy, you know, what do you do when you meet real white supremacists, real Nazis? You know, if, if misogyny used to mean like someone who really hated women, now it's someone who just doesn't agree with a particular radical perspective that most people don't agree with. Right. Or using mental illness language, like someone called me a being phobic the other day. You're an ex, you know, a thing phobic. I think it was, I don't know, it was trans or something else. And I went, no, I don't have a phobia. I, I just disagree with your perspective. And that's a very dark move that the Soviets used to do, making people frame, framing people with different political opinions as mentally ill. It's a very dark move. It is, it is, it is all quite sinister in that regard. And I think whenever somebody tries to isolate the, the conversation through exclusionary language, it's it's a sign that they've lost the argument. And we shouldn't be having. Well, we need to have this argument, but I wish we weren't having it. And um, I suspect, considering the conversation we've had, you might quite like Douglas Murray as well. He said, "While the barbarians are at the gate, while the barbarians are at the gate, we'll be arguing over." whether a man's a man a woman's a woman and that's been shown to be the case russia russia invaded ukraine while the uk and the us were too busy arguing about pronouns oh for sure and in ukraine women could become refugees and men couldn't and in, in ukraine you'll hear people say things like we love and respect our men they are protectors of the people and you, you'll just hear like these unashamedly pro-male comments we are proud that we have raised strong men who will defend our country and you go, wow, it brings shivers to my spine because you just don't hear pro-male sentiment. Uh, and, and, you know, there's very few feminists when when there's a there's a, there's, there's a, a draft on, right? I mean, and you know what I mean? When it's like, okay, yeah. like I've got my female colleagues can go for holidays in Krakow and fly to Turkey and take breaks from the war. And I encourage them to, right? But my male colleagues, the few that aren't fighting on the front line, the few that are psychologists, there's just a few male colleagues we have, like blind ones and stuff like that. You know, they can't do that. They can't take those breaks. And, they, and, and they're desperate to actually to do contribute. You know, they want to contribute to the greater good in that way. They want to defend their country. And it's beautiful. And it's I, a positive I think expression of masculinity, which is positive we, masculinity. We is a real monster at their door, which is raping and killing and burning. 
real monster. And I know people are conspiratorial and they, they would hold up against this. And I'm not saying Zelensky's perfect or Ukraine's not corrupt in some ways, but there is a real monster at their door doing horrific things. And I hear those first-hand accounts, those horrific things. So, yeah, that's where you need real masculinity. And um, that's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. One of the last things I want to ask you, Mark, is embodiment's very much getting out of our heads. A lot of the people that listen to a self-development podcast like this one are like myself. We're quite introspective. We're thinking, but we're also action-led. So like very practical. What would be your first recommendations for somebody off the back of listening to this conversation? You don't need much theory. You could read my first book or listen to a few kind of free stuff on the internet. You know, a bit basic framework is helpful, but don't need much. I just say do any, any embodied practice that brings your life. Like, you love running, go running, but bring a bit of mindfulness to it. You know, you love yoga, do a bit of yoga, get in your body. You know, I'd really recommend everyone meditate, just even if it's 10 minutes a day, that's a good foundation for everything else. Um, yeah, spend a bit of time in nature, spend more time around embodiment people, dance, flirt, make love, fucking fight, learn to fight, play with children. Uh, these are all the basics, but whatever brings you alive, really, there's so many great embodied practices out there. I wouldn't want to tell anyone they have to do X or Y. Yes, Mark. Well, uh, an exciting note for us to end on. Thank you so much for joining me. But if people want to continue the conversation with you, where should they head towards? Easy to find. Put the word embodiment, Mark Walsh, W-A-L-S-H, into the internet. Embodimentunlimited.com is our company website. Loads of free resources, different um, podcasts. There's uh, discussion groups. There's an app, the Embodiment app embodiment book the embodiment podcast the embodiment matching underwear and knickers we've got it all so um oh instagram whatever people want just put embodiment into the internet i guess i'll come up yes mark the website and your instagram will be linked in the show notes and thank you very much to you the listener i'll be back to speak to you all again very very